A study of the book of Ezra and talking about risky faith. There's a theme that's already been present in many chapters and that's going to be present in several more that I'd like to think about you think about with you this evening, the theme of God's providence. Sometimes God acts in various ways in uh, miracles and wonders and mighty signs. Uh, here in the book of Ezra, it's a different method of uh, guiding and directing, no less powerful and wonderful, perhaps more subtle and more that we can relate to as well. We come to Ezra chapter 6, and we realize now uh, in this ch- chapter how God has been guiding all things from the beginning, and that will be, the stu- that will be our study this, this evening from Ezra chapter 6, God's providence. Let's uh, read together, starting in verse 1. Then King Darius issued a decree, and a search was made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon, and at Akmetha, in the palace, that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found, and in it a record was thus written. In the first year of King Cyrus, King Cyrus issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt. The palace where, excuse me, the place where they offered sacrifices, and let the foundations of it be firmly laid, its height 60 cubits and its width 60 cubits, with three rows of heavy stones and one row of new timber. Let the expenses be paid from the king's treasury. Also let the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple, which is in Jerusalem, and brought to Babylon, be restored and taken back to the temple, which is in Jerusalem, each to its place, and deposit them in the house of God. Now, therefore, Tatenai, governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethar Bosnai, and your companions, the Persians, who are beyond the river, keep yourselves far from there. Let the work of the house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God on its site. Moreover, I issue a decree as to what you shall do for the elders of these Jews, for the building of this house of God. Let the cost be paid at the king's expense from taxes on the region beyond the river. This is to be given immediately to these men so that they are not hindered. And whatever they need, young bulls, rams, and lambs for burnt offerings of the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, and oil, according to the request of the priests who are in Jerusalem, Let it be given them day by day, without fail, that they may offer sacrifices of sweet aroma to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I issue a decree that whoever alters this edict, let a timber be pulled from his house and erected, and let him be hanged on it, and let his house be made a refuse heap because of this. And may the God who causes his name to dwell there destroy any king or people who put their hand to alter it or to destroy this house of God, which is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, issue a decree, let it be done diligently. Then Tatanai, the governor of the region beyond the river, Shethar, Bosnai, and their companions diligently did according to what King Darius had sent. So the elders of the Jews built, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo, and they built and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the commandment of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now the temple was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which was in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. 
Then the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the descendants of the captivity celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. And they offered sacrifices at the dedication of the house of God, 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. They assigned the priests to their divisions and the Levites to their divisions over the service of the God in Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. And the descendants of the captivity kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves. All of them were ritually clean. And they slaughtered the Passover lambs for all the descendants of the captivity, for their brethren and the priests, for themselves. Then the children of Israel who had returned from the captivity ate together with all who had separated themselves from the filth of the nations of the land in order to seek the Lord God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, even as you strengthened their hands and made them glad, we pray that you would uh, strengthen the faith of our hearts and the understanding of our minds, that we who have called upon this same God, their God and ours, may have confidence in the difficulties and trials and um, the uh, fightings without and fears within that we spoke of earlier, that in all these things that we might remember a great and mighty God who accomplishes all of his purposes well. We pray that uh, we would be a people of courage and boldness in the Lord. And so we pray that you would teach us your way. Through Christ we pray. Amen. There's a book that I've read to my family a couple of times now called Created for Work. I've uh, had it recommended, it recommended to me and I'd recommend it to you for you parents and kids out there. At one point, the author, Bob Schultz, talks about playing baseball in high school. He said that he got plenty of hits, but his hits always went toward right field. The coach blamed it on a slow swing, but the real problem became clear the day that they played McKenzie High. McKenzie's pitcher had the fastest arm in the league. He could throw a fastball past most of the best hitters, strike after strike. But when Bob got up to bat, he hit the ball so far to left field that he about knocked down the shortstop. And the next ball was a single to left. Again, the third went all the way to the left center fence. And the coach was shocked and said, Bob, what's happened to you? He said, confidence. You see, uh, McKenzie's pitcher was not only the fastest in the league, he was the only one in the league who could control the ball. With every other pitcher, Bob was afraid of being hit. He never knew what might be coming at him, and so he had a slightly delayed swing. He was worried more about the ball hitting him than him hitting the ball. But Bob trusted McKenzie's pitcher that he was in control, and so he was able to hit off him all day. Now, what we're going to learn today is that God is in perfect control of every event that comes our way in life and why we, therefore, must not be afraid. For everything that life throws at us is coming from the hand of the most controlled pitcher in the world. I will not be able to answer all of the difficulties of how God is able to do this in such a way as he does no violence to the will of man and he establishes second causes and on and on, but
But I would like to tell you what the Bible tells us or, uh, and illustrates about providence. Providence. It's been some time since I've spoken on this subject, and it's such an important theme for this book. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, stay on it all night. Providence is not a biblical word. It's an old-fashioned English word that simply means planning for the future or making a good use of your resources. If people don't put money aside for a rainy day, we call them improvident. That is to say, they haven't provided or planned well for the future. People also use this word to talk about how God preserves and governs the world that he made, how he cares for his creation and directs the course of history for his own good purposes. So, for example, Jesus says, aren't two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, says the Lord. You are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus applying the providence of God that we might have courage in the world. Now, providence was formerly a fairly common word uh, used in English. You might be familiar with Providence, Rhode Island, as well as the number of streets and churches throughout the country named Providence. People today talk about luck commonly, but 100 years ago, they would talk about Providence much more commonly. In fact, if you've ever watched Anne of Green Gables, some of you fans out there of Montgomery, um, book written about 100 years ago, you're, you're struck several times when there is uh, some coincidence, maybe, or a happy turn of events, and they don't say, what luck? What did they say? Providence, providence. Christian people had more of an awareness that God was involved in their daily lives, and that was reflected in their vocabulary, something that we're missing in our day. Now, some people only call happy outcomes or such coincidences providence, but that is not correct at all. For the point is that God is governing everything in his providence. So uh, John Witherspoon, signer of the Declaration of Independence, president of the College of New Jersey, later Princeton, later called Princeton, he lived about two miles from the college and he would uh, drive there every day in his carriage. One time, his neighbor excitedly came into his study and said, Dr. Witherspoon, please join me in giving thanks to God for this extraordinary providence in saving my life. For as I was driving from Rocky Hill, the horse ran away, and the buggy was smashed to pieces on the rock. But I have escaped unharmed. Why, answered Dr. Witherspoon, I can tell you a far more remarkable providence than that. I have driven over that same road hundreds of times. My horse never ran away. My buggy was never smashed, and I was never hurt. Well, he, did, he said that a bit tongue-in-cheek, of course. Uh, but the point is, providence doesn't refer simply to uh, occasional deliverances or happy coincidences. Uh, God providentially controls and directs all things that take place in the world. Acts 17, God has determined all of our pre-appointed times and the boundaries of our dwellings, uh, where we live, when we live. He is not far from each one of us. In him we live 
and move and have our being. That is to say, we could not even move apart from uh, his good pleasure. Sometimes people even have used providence as a title for God with a capital P. Sometimes people would say, providence has brought this to pass, by which they mean God in his power in mysterious ways has brought this to pass. So providence is a very different idea from fate. According to the Greeks, fate is an impersonal force or destiny that we can't escape. Even the gods couldn't escape if they wanted to. So, for example, no matter how Oedipus tried to avoid it, he could not escape the fate that one day he would kill his father and marry his mother. Everything that he did to try to avoid that fate merely fulfilled it. Fatalism is the view that it doesn't matter what you do, what happens to you is inevitable. Fatalism makes people unwilling to take bold action or even to care sometimes because, well, it's all going to be what it's going to be. However, providence is the view that all things, present, past, and future, are in the hands of a personal, wise God who orchestrates and directs all things in his holy, wise, and powerful way and in such a way that your choices, that uh, the, the, the things that uh, you think and say and do are all included. You say, how does that work? I can't understand that. Well, neither can I. I am not God. But I do know that his plan includes all of our free choices, no matter uh, 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 what they might be, so that uh, there is no idea that we can never affect the future. There is the idea that we cannot go against God's purposes. But God is nevertheless directing the course of history, including the uh, will of man in some way. Providence, therefore, makes people confident and bold because no matter what is taking place, no matter how many sparrows are falling to the ground or how many hairs we're losing from our head, God is still in control. It's one of the most fascinating, important, and yet difficult doctrines in the whole of the Christian faith. People make mistakes about it in the fatalistic side or the free will side all the time, but we are going to get some help today from Ezra chapter 6 uh, to pause here and to reflect that despite everything that happened and all the opposition, that everything that God had said and promised has now perfectly come to pass. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and like the rivers of water, Solomon wrote, he turns it wherever he wishes. Let's consider the passage and see that principle at work. Many years before this happened, the Lord declared that he would raise up a king named Cyrus, who would execute his will against Babylon and return the Jews home to their land to rebuild the city and the temple. Isaiah 44, the Lord says of Cyrus, he's my shepherd and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Now, for clarity, Cyrus had not been born and wouldn't be born for many years, but the Lord calls him by name and says, this is the man who will fulfill my will. God had, in his mysterious way, 
directed King Cyrus to issue a decree to allow the Jews to return home and to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, just as we read back in chapter 1. And then when opposition arose against the rebuilding of the temple, we read about how God sent prophets Haggai and Zechariah to encourage the people to start again. Haggai said, hey, did you guys notice how the climate has not been very favorable lately and how many economic troubles we've been experiencing? Don't you know the Lord has sent those in order to help you get your priorities straight? Uh, Yes, and Zechariah said, you know, God has many, many good purposes to fulfill in this temple in the days to come. Shouldn't you prioritize that work? Well, they had stopped for 16 years, but at the word of Haggai and Zechariah, they got busy, forgetting the danger, heedless of the difficulties that were ahead. They got to work, convinced God, who called them to it, would take care of the rest. And here in the chapter, we find the result of that. King Darius, though he was uh, uh, appealed to against the Jews, here has a complete 180, supports the rebuilding efforts, and provides money and resources from the royal treasury. And he threatens with a very harsh punishment anyone who would hinder the work or contradict the command. This removed all opposition in a stroke, and the local rulers were forced to support rather than hinder the work. And then we read that God prospered and protected the workers uh, from being stopped until it was completed. And so, in summary, we see that God's hand in this chapter has brought a total reversal, orchestrating rulers, resources, timing, people's attitudes, and the fulfillment of prophecy to work all things together for the completion of the rebuilding of his temple according to his plan and even according to his timetable of 70 years, by the way. Thus, the building of the temple can rightly be described as both in the passage, the decree of God and the decree of the Persian rulers. Well, let me, let me make three specific points for you now from the passage about these things. First, God works all things together. God works all things together. Here's the summary statement in verse 22 in this very happy chapter. The Lord made them joyful, that he turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. And as we read last week uh, in the last chapter, that they, when they started back, the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews so that they could not make them cease. No matter what people did, they could only fulfill God's purposes in the world, this God that is active in the world and involved in their lives. God is not like a man who made a clock and winds it up and then lets it uh, run all on its own. Uh, The uh, impression we get from so many passages of an intimate, continuous involvement in the lives of uh, of his creatures, especially of his children, of whom he takes special note. What kinds of things, though, does God control? Well, we read in Ephesians 1 of God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God is in control of everything that happens. And I'll begin with some very practical examples. Uh, God rules over apparently random events. 
Proverbs 16, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Uh, well, did Einstein say, God doesn't play dice. Every roll of the dice, every chance occurrence that comes to pass does so according to his will. How different this world would be if it did not. Uh, Blaise Pascal, great uh, scientist, mathematician, put it this way. If only Cleopatra had a shorter nose, the whole history of the world would have been changed. Okay? Uh, that is to say, Mark Antony wouldn't have been smitten and fallen in love because he wouldn't have found her so curiously, strikingly beautiful. There wouldn't have been this falling out between Antony and Caesar. There wouldn't have been a battle of Actium, and Augustus wouldn't have become Caesar. And there wouldn't have been a Pax Romana at the time of Christ that allowed the Gospels to to, to go throughout the world so easily. All this, if there was just one different gene in her DNA, and Cleopatra had a shorter nose, right? Or uh, this Wednesday night during Bible study this past week, uh, R.C. Sproul mentioned that if one grain of sand uh, that ha- hadn't uh, changed the course of, of history, uh, uh, the, the whole of the, uh, the, the, the West uh, would be different today. So Oliver Cromwell had already made plans to go to America. He procured a, a passage aboard a ship, and then he had these kidney stones at the uh, last minute, and very painful. He had to stay in bed. He missed his ship. Uh, things got worse. There was a civil war. He led the New Model Army. The king was tried and executed. He became the Lord Protector of Great Britain, all because of a grain of sand in his kidney. And so Sproul said, if there was one random atom in the world that was not under God's control, that was, could not be controlled by God, it would be possible that none of God's promises could come to pass. That, like the old rhyme, for the want of a nail, a shoe was lost, and for the want of a shoe, a horse was lost, and for the want of a horse, a battle was lost, for the failure of the battle, a kingdom is lost, all for the want of a horseshoe nail. But God's plans in this world could no more fail than God ceased to be God. God rules over apparently random events. God rules over his natural world. Psalm 104, he causes the grass to grow for the cattle and the vegetation for the service of man. Jesus says he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And we just read again about how the climate conditions in uh, their day were unfavorable as the Lord was seeking to teach them what was most important in life. God rules over the natural world. He rules over the nations. God told the Babylonian emperor, the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whomever he chooses. In fact, Romans 13 says there is no authority, there is no power that be except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. He rules over the nations and their kings. God rules over the hearts of people, You remember it says of Lydia, God opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And God even rules and overrules the deeds of of people. A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps, Proverbs 16. More than we could say, but in God's providence, he is able to direct even sinful deeds that people freely and willingly commit in order to bring about his 
great purposes in the world. Joseph was betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery. Haven't we just read that? Falsely accused, forgotten in an Egyptian prison. And years later, when he was made prime minister of Egypt and savior of the world of that day, he told his brothers, look, as for you, you meant evil against me. And evil came. But God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. The same action that men meant for evil, God meant for good, and great good came. He says, God sent me before you to save your lives by a great deliverance. So it was not you who sent me here, that is ultimately, but God. Or when Job lost his wealth and his children in several simultaneous tragedies at the hands of Satan. He didn't curse the Chaldean and Sabaean raiders or the devil that had been such uh, a, 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 a scourge to him. Job said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the next verse says he did not sin. The point is that everything in life is under the rule and government and control of God. He's got the whole world in his hands. You and me, brother, the little bitty babies, the wind, the rain, that's a good kid's song. There's not a single atom of this universe that does not obey his purpose. And so when Jesus says not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from his will, he is saying that there is nothing that God did not plan from eternity past, nothing that he has not seen to bring past, to pass in the future. And yet to do so in a very important way, as our own confession of, church's confession of faith makes sure that we, we understand um, that neither God is the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away but established. How does he do it? I don't know. But he does, Daniel 4, according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? History is his story. It doesn't mean that we don't make free and responsible choices for which we will be called to account. We do. But God overrules in all things to bring about his purposes, nevertheless, on the earth. And so I give you this classic definition from the old uh, German catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism. God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Do you believe that? Well, here it is in flesh and blood in Ezra chapter 6. All that the Lord has said, he here fulfills. Even as we left off in the last chapter, there were people seeking to hinder the work. They, they had them two chapters ago at the point of the sword. Nevertheless, God brings his purposes to pass, for God is at work in this world, and none can stay his hand. Point two. God works all things together for good. You probably see where this is going. God works all things together for good. Not all things are good, 
But God is working all things together for good, an important distinction. That is to say, in the passage, the Lord allowed the people of the land formerly to persecute and intimidate the Jews. That was wicked. That was sinful. But God was teaching his people by these things perseverance and what is most important, and especially through the testimony of the prophets, that they must learn to fear the Lord rather than man. And when the Jews got frightened and they stopped work on the temple, those 16-odd years, God sent them poverty. God sent them drought. Haggai chapter 1, as we read last week, he who earns wages puts it into a bag with holes. You look for much, indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Because of my house that's in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house, says the Lord of hosts. That is why the heavens above you withhold the dew and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and on the mountains and the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. Well, are famine, drought, and poverty good things? Certainly not. They are not good. But the point is, they were being used for good. The good of those who loved the Lord. To teach them the things that were most important in life. You know that Paul writes about tribulation, distress, persevering, sorry, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword. And yet he does so as some of those all things that work together for good. And to be specific, he says that these things that bring so much pain and trial um, are used as we are, he writes, predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And that is one of the greatest of all of God's purposes in bringing to pass all these things, that those who love him, even if they must suffer these things, will never be separated from the love of Christ. And these things are destined to conform us to the image of Jesus, himself a suffering Savior. So I ask you, how are you in your life going to learn perseverance, hmm? steadfastness, courage. Dear friends, you need something to be courageous toward. How are you going to learn to show the world Christ's forgiveness? Does it not require people to persecute you and sin against you repeatedly? Is there any other way to learn forgiveness and to show forgiveness? There is not. How are you going to show the world Christ's love? You say, Lord, please make them lovable. Um, it will It requires us to love those who are unlovable, to love even enemies as we were loved when we were enemies. How are we going to show the world Christ's patience? Is he not going to make us wait? These things are not good, but they are used for good for those who love the Lord. And that is what Paul means when he says tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. We, we often cannot see it in the moment. We don't understand God's good purposes in the evil things. Sometimes we don't see these things at all. But this we know. All things are working together for our good by God. One preacher told the story of coming into a house and he saw a, a piece of cloth that had been used for an embroidery. But it was a, a total mess. He writes, a mixture of tangled threads 
unrelated colors, loose ends, and unra unravelable knots. But he picked it up and turned it over, and on the other side was embroidered, clear as day, the words, God is love. And he says, oftentimes our life is like that embroidery. Tangled threads, unravelable knots, unrelated colors, loose ends. But one day we can see it more as God sees it, right? The work is finished. There will be a beautiful design evident upon the lives of his people all that will be beautiful and visible. God is love. Or as uh, old John Flavel put it, God's providence is like a Hebrew word. You can only read it backward. So... God works all things together for good. My, my final point from the passage, as you've probably already guessed, is God works all things together for good to those who love him. God works all things together to, for good to those who love him. Uh, th those who had opposed the building of the temple, who had threatened the, the Jews, they, they are now compelled to support it financially. Um, Another one of these great reversals, by the way, that the Lord just loves to bring about when he sees that his people are out of strength. God often, at that moment, brings the evil plans of evildoers back on their own heads. Uh, Haman is hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Psalm 141, the wicked fall into their own nets. And God, though indeed patient and merciful, knows how to work things together for evil to those who do evil. However, the point is here, to those who love the Lord. Well, we, we realize now that all things work together for good to those who love him. There's a total reversal of fortune. And the, the temple is finished in short order. And the people rejoice. And God made them glad. This is one more way for us to love the Lord, by trusting him. Uh, Charles Spurgeon told the story about a blind child and whose uh, arms his father would carry him about. One day, somebody came into the house without saying a word. Uh, he took the boy out of the father's arms. It was a friend of the father. And the boy didn't cry out or complain. He thought he was playing a trick on the boy. And he said, Johnny, aren't you afraid? You don't know who's got you. The boy said, no, I'm not afraid. I don't know who he is, but, but, but you do, Dad. Uh, do you have this confidence that even when you do not see what's happening, your father in heaven sees what is happening, and, and that's enough. That uh, Heidelberg Catechism I mentioned earlier asks this question further. What does it benefit us to know that God, who created all things, still upholds them by providence? Answer, we can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love, for all creatures are completely in his hand, so that without his will, they cannot so much as move. Well, this is a doctrine that is designed not only to give us courage, but to draw out our hearts in love to our God, to feel, as it were, his fatherly hand leading our hands, directing our lives for our good and for his glory. Providence, though mysterious, is one of these great teachings of the Bible and a particular doctrine that produced generations of strong, thankful, joyful Christians because of their confidence and trust in their loving God. Psalm 48, this is our God forever and ever, and he will be our guide 
even to death. Does this help your hearts at all? At the end of the chapter, we read, They kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful. He did it all. He made it all work. There are so many things that we don't understand, but this we know. God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. Our God is powerful and wise and loving. And therefore, we can face all things in this life, now and in the future, whatever it may bring. There may well be evil things coming, heartbreaking things, frustrating things, disappointing things. We don't know. But we know that whatever comes, he works all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are the called according to his purpose, conforming us to the image of Jesus. This this gives us deep gratitude for God, for all the things in our lives, knowing, as James says, every perfect gift is from above. God has blessed us. Second, it keeps us from despair, giving us patience, comfort, strength, and hope while we must suffer adversity. Even in times of loss, we can say with Job, blessed be the name of the Lord. It causes us to marvel at God's unsearchable wisdom. It gives us joyful trust in God for the future. If he spared not his own son, how will he not with him also freely give us all things? It frees us to obey when we are fearful, with confidence and security. When our Obedience seems risky or foolish by the world's standards. God's providence encourages risk-taking obedience for God's glory. Do not fear. You are worth more than many sparrows, says the Lord. It gives us deeper trust in God because he will accomplish his purposes without fail. It gives us great encouragement and confidence in prayer, knowing that he can do whatever we ask. And finally, it can give us courage in every circumstances, every circumstance, because we know that all things are in his fatherly hands. May God encourage us all and make us a holy people trusting in his mighty providence. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless this teaching to our hearts. Great King and Father in heaven, we would see the Lord high upon his throne, lifted up, and we would see Christ upholding all things by the word of his power, having purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, henceforth waiting until his enemies be made the footstool of his feet. He is indeed our rock of ages. And though we have uh, trials at this moment, uh, fears that remain, we, we pray that as Christ is our rock, so may he be our hiding place and our shield. It is he who has all authority in heaven and earth to rule the nations. And we do not presume to know your purposes in bringing things to pass. But we know that you are good and that your purposes are good. We pray that you would make these purposes plain more and more to this world. And so direct all things that you should be glorified among us and through us now and forever. Through our Lord Jesus Christ in whom we pray.